We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And now New Galaxy Broadcasting presents Inalienable and Free, Voice of the Coalition, a program addressing the grave challenges to human and citizen rights in America and the rest of the world. How can we, the people of Earth, take back the power and privileges granted to us by God and address so significantly in the Declaration of Independence? Our rights are inalienable, that is, given by God and incapable of being taken away from or given by another. These rights are the basis of liberty, the foundation of all life and happiness. The Coalition of Planetary Empowerment is an organization designed to give its members tools and information to empower them personally, in relationships, and in business and employment, but also to give them a voice and the ability to help transform political and corporate governance to support the true needs and desires of people throughout the world. Inalienable and Free focuses on the need for government and corporate business interests to be responsive to the will and desire of their constituents and consumer shareholders. Welcome to Inalienable and Free, Voice of the Coalition. Our program is designed to promote the creation of a special website and social network infrastructure created to empower its members personally in relationships and business and employment but also to empower them politically in a manner that will specifically promote citizen and human rights. Inalienable and Free purports to do this, too, in a very general way. What we hope is that someday coalition members will do this themselves, discuss the current policies and practices of government, business, and media, and create better paradigms, and then communicate with those entities in government, business, and media. In our opinion, most of these geopolitical policies are polarized, which means they lean too hard in the direction of self-interest or to the provision of policies to help others involving unnecessary and dangerous self-sacrifices of oneself, one's country, or the world. Also, these policies are often designed, despite what they appear to be, to have a certain appeal to voters or consumers, but are deceptive in nature and geared towards self-interest. We consider the validity of policies in general to lie in the level of higher consciousness not just any level of expanded consciousness, but the experience of the divine presence, an immense and critical experience that has many levels, but all of them tending towards righteousness and the empowerment of the individual in light of his or her connection to the divine presence, called the Shekinah in Hebrew and related to terms like Samadhi in Hinduism, Israq and Fana in Islam, and in many other religious and spiritual organizations. We consider the conscience of the individual to be a reflection of the state, the foundation of righteousness in ordinary consciousness, and a stepping stone to understand the quality of goodness, its own righteousness, inherent in the experience of the divine presence. The current geopolitical forces in the world have so far not contributed to the well-being of its human populations. The earth has been significantly polluted and desecrated by human technology, endangering the air, water, and soil, as well as now putting the earth under the continuous danger of nuclear war. Right now in the United States, both political parties present certain types of opposite agendas. The Democratic characterized as compassionate and liberal, the Republican characterized as self-interested and conservative. But both parties have fused together at the hip in their readiness for war. Throughout our programs, we have spoken of two kinds of empire building. 
The first is a globalist empire building, which is focused on building a centralized world government. The second type of empire building is a nationalist empire building, which is focused on building an empire where one nation either assimilates other nations as parts of their national identity or controls them as puppets. Under the Bush and Obama administrations aligned with the neocons, there was a globalist agenda. Under Trump's agenda, there is an American empire agenda where the United States perceived at the head of a confederation of countries controlling much of their internal and external objectives. Trump's genius was to mobilize a political base from the disaffected millions who looked at the globalist agenda with their so-called free trade agreements, their challenges to national sovereignty and open borders, their corruption of the political processes and the control by the neocons, their continual gifting of prosperity to the 1% and their willingness to let multinational corporations control much of the economy as inimical to their self-interest. Despite Trump's campaign promises to diminish the use of troops in foreign military excursions after his reign, his presidency, that is, began, he showed that he was not just willing to provide this country with a strong military foundation, but he's willing to use it directly and indirectly. The two types of empire-building globalists and nationalists have one thing in common. They rely on military power and might to build their empire. So it is conceivable that in certain circumstances, the characters playing out the globalist agendas can collaborate with the characters playing in the nationalist agendas. In a nuclear age, a little pebble of an incident could conceivably lead to a giant boulder that could crush the existence of all mankind and the well-being of the entire biosphere of planet Earth. Because of this danger and the ever-growing and expansion of this deadly technology, ordinary military action is constantly presenting the opportunities for further escalation. The recent actions in Syria now present a dangerous potential for explosive military action through the toxic combination of the United States, Israel, Russian, and Iranian interests, reflected directly and indirectly through various proxies. Iran, now targeted by American sanctions, also stands directly as a potential battleground with immense dangers to the scourge of war. But now it seems that Venezuela has become a fresh target for the projection of the Trump's administration's desire for regime change. On September 19, 2017, Trump gave a speech to the General Assembly, to the United Nations, and closed with this proclamation and threat. Let's hear from Telesur, Trump attacks Venezuela and the UN. The socialist dictatorship of Nicolas Maduro has inflicted terrible pain and suffering on the good people of that country. This corrupt regime destroyed a prosperous nation by imposing a failed ideology that has produced poverty and misery everywhere it has been tried. We and all others have a goal. That goal is to help them regain their freedom, recover their country, and restore their democracy. We are prepared to take further action if the government of Venezuela persists on its path to impose authoritarian rule on the Venezuelan people. Now, no matter how you like Trump or his domestic policies, you can't entirely dismiss that Venezuela has been having a hard time, and many people have emigrated to other countries, giving concern to their neighbors. Here's a clip from a French organization showing what life is like in Venezuela's cash-strapped economy. There isn't much cash flowing in Venezuela. Apart from public transport and street food, little is paid for with coins and notes. Most businesses have been forced to adapt to card payments and a reduction in sales. 
I sell less and have fewer clients because of the situation. It has become too expensive for people to buy clothing or any other personal items. I let them pay whatever they have, because they all want to pay with cards. But because I don't have the technology for that, I let them pay me in cash, with whatever they are carrying. According to some experts, the two main causes of inflation are a waste of oil profits and corruption at all levels of government. A communist economy that expropriated and didn't make an effort to keep the companies running led to a brutal decline in oil revenues. That has been creating shortages and pushing up inflation. What's the figure? 10,000? 15,000? 20,000 percent? We don't know. We do know the prices are doubling every month. Polls show that most Venezuelans are eating just one meal a day and to buy basic food items they have to stand in line for hours. On average, Venezuelans lost 11 kilos last year due to food shortages and hyperinflation is so bad that you can barely buy one apple with a monthly wage. But many Venezuelans don't blame their government. They say the real cause is an economic war orchestrated by the U.S. Venezuela helps so many countries. And now, because we don't cave in to their demands, they close all the borders and impose sanctions without a reason. In an oil-rich country, nothing happens by chance. We have more than 300 billion barrels of oils in reserve. The North American empire and the big multinationals are holding the Venezuelan people hostage. People are being forced to take increasingly desperate measures to survive, and it's unclear what the next government will do to improve their plight. Well, hyperinflation isn't fun. And it is one of the major reasons, probably, that eventually Germany had to go to war. Because when you're trying to buy something, you know, like an apple, and it costs, it costs you a day or a week's wage, that becomes kind of ridiculous. And that's what some of these people have been going through. We're going to take a commercial break now. This is Johnny Bluestar, CEO of New Galaxy Enterprises, a media content development company. One of the most exciting projects I've regularly been involved in is the creation of nonfiction books, often collaborating with new authors on a wide variety of topics, either through editing or through writing, sometimes being guided by the client's direction or collaborating directly with the client. In this capacity, I've worked on a book on abolishing the caste system in India, a system of selling with integrity and sensitivity towards client and product, several fascinating memoirs, one with a Korean war veteran and crime fighter, another with one of the greatest ventriloquists and television producers in the 50s and 60s. To learn more about New Galaxies, see samples of our work, or talk to us about your project, please go to www.newgalaxyenterprises.com and fill out the contact form. 
In Ken Ede's book, The Involuntary Spy, Seth Rogen, a scientist, after having discovered a major deception created by a multi-billion dollar worldwide agribusiness giant that he works for, is driven by his conscience to release the information to the public at the peril of his reputation, career, and life itself. To do this, he must take refuge in Moscow. Here is an excerpt. Chapter 4 Yuri helped Seth settle into the safe house in Moscow. Tomorrow night, he would take the nine-hour flight to the Far East. From the apartment, he could see the colorful and distinctive towers of St. Basil's Cathedral from his window, and the glittering gold onion domes of the Church of Annunciation in the Kremlin. This was the Kremlin he had seen so many times on television. Back then, during the Cold War, it had represented the seat of the Empire of Evil. Now, it was oddly beautiful. The American press was already doing damage control on Seth's report to Russia today. The president called it propaganda, and said that the United States was against the manufacture of biological weapons. Spokesmen from the company said that Seth's report to RT should be disregarded as the words of a traitor and a thief. Because of his fleeing the country, Seth's story was discredited in every mainstream media report. Okay, your name now is George Amers, said Yuri, smiling, holding out documents. Here is new passport. I'm Canadian? Yes. Does that mean I have to say A all the time? Seth, Russians don't care what you say. But don't talk to people. Don't talk to people. And don't go anywhere. Just to work and back home. Sounds boring. Isn't that what you guys do in America anyway? Well, yeah. Okay. Don't make friends. If you want a girl, we get you girl. That sucks. Look, it's only for six months. Then you can do what you want. If you see anything suspicious, call me. Six months, eh? Yes, six months. Oh, and shave mustache and color hair. What? You prefer shave head and color mustache? No, no, that's okay. I'll take the hair color. And we fix nose. What's wrong with my nose? Nose too big. It's not. We fix anyway. Okay, let me see if I've got it. Don't go anywhere. Don't make friends. Sleep with prostitutes that you send to me and wear a disguise. Yes, you are smart. Don't forget to use lenses I gave you for eyes. And what? Lose some weight. Seth worked on his disguise with the materials Yuri had left in the safe house. He said a fond farewell to the mustache that had been with him since high school and picked a dark brown color to mask his light brown hair. With the contacts in, his eyes changed from green to brown. He didn't even recognize himself. The surface disguise was the easy part. Being George Amers would be the true disguise to master. We've already done a lot of talking about war today, and despite perhaps the slight lull in things because of the midterms, I think it's time to take a moment to look forward to. For this reason, I would like to play a song I wrote with composer Edgar Ahrens and was sung by Patricia Welch. It is designed to be part of a musical we all have been working on called Hadley's Castle, which is a ruins of a castle in England and was the subject of a famous painting by John Constable. I saw this painting in an old art book, and within minutes a song came to me called Hadley's Castle, which has been written and partially produced, but is not finished. This song turned out to fit into a collection of songs for the musical and perhaps our first album. It is a very universal story about Christmas called Christmas in Your Eyes, something to look forward to. 
For me, my concern over Venezuela rose incrementally after reviewing some videos by Florida Maquis, an organization which looks at the underlying psychology and intent of language used by governments to convey messaging to the public. Florida Maquis is very critical of the intent and accuracy of various critics of the Maduro regime, including U.S. characterizations. We will present a bit of his review of the situation in Venezuela 
but perhaps not enough to truly encapsulate his entire point of view. But we will also hear from We Are Change, whose interview features David Unsworth, editor of the Pan Am Post, hardly a fan of the Maduro regime, and The Intercept with Glenn Greenwald, who sounds a warning about the new regime in Brazil. This whole situation with Venezuela is new to me, although there are warning signals about more military excursion by the U.S. or support of its proxies, perhaps Colombia and Brazil, into the fray. But I don't know much, and I am in the process of learning curve. Now let's listen to a bit of We Are Change, features and interview with David Unsworth, editor of the Pan Am Post. Even when I was in Venezuela, they were not happy with the government. And what do you expect? You have Maduro eating empanadas during his state television announcement. You have Maduro, where, where was he, in, in Turkey with the, with the guy who does the little salt thing. Uh, celebrity chef. Celebrity chef eating the steak while a lot of the people there are hungry. Now, um, I wanted to kind of get your analysis on what has been happening because I would say... Uh, U.S. aid, the CIA, and also the sanctions, um, I don't think they're that good for the country of Venezuela. I don't think they're making any progress here. And, and, and again, if you disagree with me, let me know. But to me, a lot of people are suffering. And, and to me, sanctions haven't worked on so many different countries before. Uh, what is your assessment on, on kind of the sanctions and uh, the, the options that people have to try to see a change in Venezuela? Well... Uh, as much as I'd like to believe in the electoral process in Venezuela, there's very good evidence that elections are a sham. Chavez did win three elections, possibly a fourth in Venezuela. The last election he won in both the Maduro's elections are completely and certainly electoral frauds. Uh, Chavismo has been completely discredited in the eyes of the Venezuelan people. As far as what they can do, uh, there, there is not much. There is violent and brutal repression on the part of state security forces. Uh, there are Cuban intelligence and military advisors that are basically propping up uh, the Venezuelan government and telling them what to do and how to keep a iron grip on everything and not let things spin out of control. Um, the most important thing that the Venezuelan people can do is tell people why socialism doesn't work. It has never worked in Venezuela. It has never worked anywhere it's been tried. Uh, basically, if you're 18 to 35 and you're not married and don't have kids, you're probably leaving the country. That's, that's the end case scenario. And I cannot overstate. Uh, we have 1.5 million Venezuelans in Colombia. It may even be 2 million. Uh, it's very hard to estimate, but this is a mass exodus of biblical proportions. And if, if we were to walk out on the streets of Bogota right now, everyone we see is Venezuelan. They're everywhere. They're, if you go over to the terminal, the, the, the bus terminal over there on the other side of the city, everyone, you'll, families, mothers with babies in their arms, everyone is just trying to get out. They're going, and, and there's so many here in Colombia that they need to even go further. Many are going to Peru. Peru has over half a million Venezuelans. They're going as far as... Chile, Uruguay, Argentina, they're going everywhere. And, and the lucky ones are going, are, are going to Miami or going to Europe. But most people can't do that. As far as what they can do, uh, there aren't many good options at this point. The electoral system is completely broken. Uh, the economy is completely broken. We're getting reports today that 80% of the country doesn't have gasoline right now. So you can't even get around. You can't go to school. You can't go to work. Buses aren't even running in the country anymore. There, there are no more uh, inter, intra-city buses, buses carrying passengers from one place to another. 
as far as the sanctions go, uh, th there there is no good answer. I, I can't say that they're a great idea. I also can't completely discard that possibility either. Yeah, I mean, from the U.S. point of view, it's to put pressure on the people so the people revolt and overthrow the government. But crap, it hasn't really worked, and it has hurt a lot of people. And, and like you were saying, I've been seeing Venezuelans all the way in Panama, uh, a large number of them. They're all over the place, and there's another immigration crisis that a lot of people don't like to talk about on the mainstream media. They like to talk about uh, the U.S.-Mexico border, the Europe-Africa border, but there's also another major one happening here in Latin America that is also very important and should be uh, a lot of concern uh, to a lot of people, especially with the galvanized, bolsterous talk of a possible war happening on this uh, continent. There are various ways to look at the subject matter in this interview because despite the various straightforward condemnation of Maduro's regime, some say the hard times are being exaggerated, and others say that the problem lies in what the United States has done to Maduro. Here is an alternative voice in the media that looks at what's happening in Venezuela in a larger context. Although I'm not personally knowledgeable about the details, it looks to me that what is described here is a pattern of exploitation and conquest for commercial profit that we see continually across the entire global geopolitical terrain. But then, 2014, 2015, the U.S. conspires with Saudi Arabia to crater oil prices simultaneously to this. What does that do? It almost bankrupts 20 countries in the world. You see, the U.S. couldn't just join the oil markets. We can lift the ban all we want, but if we start flooding the, the markets, they crater, and they, go, they completely collapse. And OPEC wasn't going to allow that. The OPEC countries were going to say, okay, we're each going to scale back our production to allow the United States to join. That's why we had to overthrow Iraq, so we could get a seat at the table of OPEC. So... U.S. oil prices absolutely crater. Venezuela, like many other countries, took it on the chin. But in 2015, in a going away present, the last administration decided to declare Venezuela an extraordinary national security threat, seized billions of dollars in their assets in the United States, and sanctioned them, preventing them from getting loans. The current administration doubled down on it twice. So here's the, the three things, this perfect storm for Venezuela. Their income cratered 80% in one year. They were having the goods and services in the western part of their country completely destroyed by these paramilitaries, the currency itself being robbed, and then sanctions, no ability to get loans to fix it. This is what caused the problem in Venezuela, not socialism. The problem was an engineered strike with Venezuela losing the ability and other nations around the world as well, Nigeria, Kazakhstan, Russia, more than I can name right now off the top of my head, all losing the ability to produce oil because of this. It gave the U.S. an opening. And now what do you see? The U.S. basically took Venezuela's place supplying oil to China and to India and to the EU. Meanwhile, to say thank you to the Saudis, we have increased our imports of their oil exponentially. So here's where we stand. It didn't work. It almost did. They tried to overthrow the government in Venezuela, and it didn't work. They tried to kill them, and it didn't work. 
the people of Venezuela stood up to this. They saw what was happening. And while there are some, and there are regions down here where there are food shortages, and people have starved, absolutely, but it hasn't been the whole country. And it sure as hell wasn't the fault of Nicolas Maduro or Hugo Chavez. They have had to find a way to get around the U.S. dollar. Find a way to stand back up. They've been forced, with no other option, to go to China, to go to Russia. They used to be our ally. And they're not anymore. But this peace deal in Colombia backfired. Big time. The FARC and the ELN realized the game, and now they have gone back into the hills and rearmed. And these right-wing paramilitaries that told all this bullshit, they're in a world of hurt right now. And they are losing. This is why Duque was installed in Colombia. He's going to be declaring war not just on Venezuela. He's going to be declaring war on most of his own people. Sanctions, currency theft, income destruction, all of this. Executive orders. This has all been orchestrated at the direction of big oil. And don't you find it strange that as soon as this current administration took power, who ended up being Secretary of State? Rex Tillerson. Just long enough to get this going. And once he got in and he realized how bad it had been fucked up, he left. He's like, shit. This is totally screwed up. We can't win this now unless we go in and do regime change. And he wasn't going to be part of that, especially when it comes out. And regardless of the Fox News propaganda arm talking about zebra for dinner or whatever, they're not, of course, going to tell you that a lot of those pictures were from the Yemeni Civil War. And like I said, there were problems in Venezuela. There still are problems in Venezuela. But it goes back to a very long argument down there about what the U.S. felt was its birthright, basically, for lack of a better term. Monroe Doctrine, Magna Carta, whatever you want to call it. The U.S. went down to South America and decided to help itself. And it got caught with its hand in the cookie jar by a group of people that it should have done its history lessons on. See, this group of people threw off the Spanish Empire in the 1800s. These people aren't the type of people to live under anyone's thumb. And if you want to look at the strange similarities between George Washington and Simon de Bolivar, he's their George Washington. And he is the one that freed South America. Ecuador, Venezuela, Colombia, and Panama all used to be one country called Gran Colombia. And when they threw off the chains of the Spanish, the four regions were divided up amongst four generals underneath Mr. Bolivar. And if you still don't think it was an orchestration, all of those sanctions that prevented banks from giving loans to Venezuela, there was one bank that was allowed to issue bonds. And that was Goldman Sachs and Steve Mnuchin, who ranked in, raked in a bunch of money in 2017. And you can look that up. Look up hunger bonds. Steve Mnuchin, Goldman Sachs. So this is where we are. 
we are now staged for war. We have Colombia being run by a maniacal, psychotic dictator who was installed by a man named Uribe, who has the blood of tens of thousands of people on his hands. We have Brazil, probably top ten military in the world, second most powerful in the hemisphere, a couple of weeks away from deciding whether they're going to be run by somebody who's sane or by another insane dictator. And read on Bolsonaro. If you really, really want to be honest with yourself, read up on Jair Bolsonaro. I thought that was very interesting, but now let's go to another break. My company, New Galaxy Enterprises, is a California corporation specializing in the creation of media and promotional content. We are focused on original, innovative projects that are good for humanity. These projects could be nonfiction books or novels, fictional screenplays or documentary content, websites and website content, commercial advertising content for print, audio or video products on the internet, television or radio, musical scores for advertising, television or film, video, audio editing, etc. We want to promote products and projects that support the environment, encourage a healthy experience in living, developing, nurturing and useful technology and offering platforms for positive, socially constructive entertainment or informative, transformative media. Our experience in creating a variety of products like this is rather vast and we offer client-based and collaborative products as well as the opportunity of active investors to join us in the creation and promotion of proprietary products, some of which are in latter stages of development. For more information, go to www.NewGalaxyEnterprises.com. That's www.NewGalaxyEnterprises.com. If you're interested in talking to us, just fill out the contact sheet and we will get back with you. If you're not fond of books, you may be interested in watching Dr. Rodier's slide presentation on his website, hugorodier.com. That's H-U-G-O-R-O-D-I-E-R.com. It lasts 48 minutes and explains the simple roots of all diseases with pictures and graphs that are easy to understand. The presentation includes basic principles of physics, philosophy, anthropology, and history to truly integrate the most vital pillars of human health. Here is a great song from Lightstorm called Love is Enough. I can feel your quiet worry when you look into my eyes. You think what will save our world from dying, from war, from greed and lies. Just remember.
Let's take a look at the new leader of Brazil, Bolsonaro, from the standpoint of award-winning journalist Glenn Greenwald. Hi, I'm Glenn Greenwald with The Intercept, and I'm speaking to you from Rio de Janeiro in Brazil, where last night a stunning victory was obtained by the now president-elect Jair Bolsonaro of this country, which is the fifth most populous country in the world, the seventh largest economy, and one with massive oil reserves. And in his victory, Jair Bolsonaro became unquestionably the most extremist candidate to win a national election and become president of a democracy in probably 20 to 30 years, certainly the most extremist one at the moment. And I wanted to spend time talking about the lessons that there are to be learned for the rest of the democratic world from what happened in Brazil. But in order to do that, we need to first understand exactly who Jair Bolsonaro is and why he won. So the Western media has long talked about Bolsonaro in the only way that they could understand him, which is, quote, Brazil's Trump or the Trump of the tropics. And I think now for many reasons, the even the Western media has come to realize how woefully inadequate, in fact, wildly misleading that is. He really isn't comparable to Trump. He's far more extreme and poses a par, far more serious danger to basic human rights and democracy, and that's true for three reasons. The first of which is that Bolsonaro was actually part of a military dictatorship when he served in the military. That only ended in 1985 and explicitly once 
to reimpose it. He talks about the military dictatorship as being a far superior form of government to the democracy under which Brazil has lived for the past 30 years. He has said things like he believes that only a civil war can solve Brazil's problems in which 30,000 people are killed and that even if innocents die, that's okay. Since innocents die in war, he talks about how torture was justified and warranted when used against domestic dissidents. And he, in general, simply talks about a cleansing, as he called it in the last speech that he gave before the vote, that's needed, unlike, he said, anything seen in Brazilian history, where the left of the country will be eliminated, either because they'll be killed, imprisoned, or forced to leave the country. Beyond that, Brazil's institutions democratically are far more fragile and there are far fewer checks than exist in Western Europe or in the United States because Brazil is such a young democracy. Its institutions have been decimated by a convergence of scandals. So even if you wanted to believe that there are other figures similar in thinking or ideology to Bolsonaro, the fact that he's in Brazil and not much older and more established democracies means the limits that might be imposed on him are far fewer and far weaker. And then the final point that I think has gone most overlooked is that even though he has tried to link himself to other new right or far right modern leaders like Donald Trump or Nigel Farage or Marine Le Pen, the reality is much different. Even Marine Le Pen said that she found most of his statements and many of his uh, planks to be horrendous and offensive. And that's because Bolsonaro is really not part of the modern alt-right movement. He really comes from the far-right extremist movement that preceded it from the 60s and 70s, one that was devoted not to the dangers of what it considers to be posed by migration of Muslims or Africans, but instead by what he perceives to be an existential war against communism, including communists in the country. And if you look at the atrocities that have been carried out in the 20th century after Stalin and Mao, far more atrocities were committed in the name of fighting against communism than communism itself, whether it be Indonesia or the Philippines or the regimes in Latin America that the U.S. and the U.K. supported, including here in Brazil, as well as in Chile, Argentina, and elsewhere. That's his mentality and mindset. Unfortunately, this program is only an hour a week, and I cannot really cover all the events that I would like. But I would also like to mention a situation that I found very disturbing, and that is the recent comments and actions of Donald Trump on the impending arrival of caravans now headed to Mexico, headed towards the southern border. Trump has been characterizing the caravan as an, quote, invasion, and is accordingly sending 5,000 troops to the border, utilizing the alleged immigration crisis as his main focus. Yesterday, following the midterms, Trump gave a press conference, a long one, featuring a great deal of abusive and confrontational rhetoric with reporters, several who he called horrible people, and one in particular, Jim Acosta, who said he should be fired by CNN. Acosta, like others, was rather forward in his attempt to question Trump, but the kind of response to Acosta by Trump was unique. Acosta was trying to ask him why he described the caravan, as I mentioned, as an invasion. Trump did not like the question, and they argued, and Trump insisted that the microphone be taken away from Acosta. After the event, when Acosta was trying to re-enter the White House, he was refused entry, and his hard pass, which gave him entry to the White House, was taken away. Trump took away the press pass of a lead White House reporter for a major network. I do not like a great deal about CNN, which I believe, along with MSNBC and Fox, supports an imperialistic agenda and war machine, often by ignoring critical news in favor of reporting domestic squabbles, but also by distorting and lying about events or restricting their coverage to tainted news reports. 
So I do believe in fake news and that, in certain respects, Trump is right in his railing against fake news. But I also believe that Trump is also a major dispenser of fake news and relies on scapegoating, hyperbole, and outright lying when he sends his messages to the American public. One of those messages is about the caravan, but this follows his most sick and insane policy of bulk family separation. Yes, it is possible there are some criminals in the caravan and there may be some hitherto financial backing of the caravan, but I believe that the caravan largely consists of families and individuals seeking freedom from oppression and unstable regimes and the pervasive influence of lethal drug cartels who have assumed a larger control over some populations than their own government. I believe the people in the caravan are largely desperate. If I were wanting to help such people and I had the funding, I don't think my solution would be to send them to the southern border of the United States too dangerous for them and their families, considering the Trump's administration's former tactics. I personally, as mentioned before in my programs, do not mind militarizing the border, but only with special conditions. Recently, I saw a program by Florida McKee, not a great friend of Trump's policies, saying he liked his military presence there. A non-combatant military would assist in the building of tents to temporarily house the asylum seekers. He characterized it as a place to give the caravan members to rest and recoup and be given food and refreshments while they made their case for asylum. But probably after the video that I'm speaking of, he might have changed his mind. Yes, Trump announced that if people threw rocks against soldiers, he would treat the rocks, he would tell them to treat the rocks, considering the potential damage they could do, as firearms and authorize the soldiers to fire on them. The Pentagon refused to directly respond to inquiries, saying only that soldiers were allowed to defend themselves without commenting on the rock vis-a-vis -vis firearm analogy as an excuse for firing. For me, borders need to become internationalized, and that if needed, people could be sent to other countries if there were a chance that the neighboring countries at the border could not really take them. I believe that intentional communities could be set up to educate them, train them, and teach them community-building skills like agriculture, carpentry, plumbing, etc., so they could create self-sustaining communities. While they stayed at the international border in an intentional community designed to upgrade their skills, a government-sponsored agency could be interacting with companies in the neighboring country to send them temporarily or permanently to aid those countries in their need for certain types of labor. According to my paradigm, the United States, along with other developed countries, would assist the needy countries, in our case in Central and South America, to build their economies so they could aid the poor and disabled would profoundly build the middle class and not look at these countries as described in our former Florida Maquis video as a receptacle for the wealthy countries to extract their resources, exploit their cheap labor, and destroy population-friendly regimes for their own economic benefit. Do I think these kinds of damages could be easy? Not at all. This would require the U.S. and probably much of the rest of the world to make a great shift. But if you look at the massive changes in technologies, just say in the last 50 years or so, is it impossible to believe that the human consciousness can make that shift as well? That is what we hope for, and that is what we are working towards. It's either that or fall asleep at the wheel while the massive forces of darkness run over all of us. We are now about to say goodbye. Our messages will be followed by the Golden Gospel Singers' rendition of the great civil rights song, O Freedom. This is Johnny Blue Star, host of Inalienable and Free, the voice of the coalition a program devoted to the development of the Coalition for Planetary Empowerment. The Coalition is a unique project designed to empower its members both individually and collectively. Besides individual empowerment, its broader focus is on the restoration, protection, and enhancement 
of citizen and human rights throughout the world through the aid of its members. As this project is centered in the United States, our first task is to create a website and social network infrastructure to promote collective efforts to take back our rightful control as citizens over our government as designed by our founding fathers. Although we must begin with the social network restricted to United States citizens, the organization will also host a global dialogue for the discussion of human rights by citizens of democratic nations throughout the world. If you're interested, please check us out in the GoFundMe.com website, entering in the search field, the Coalition for Planetary Empowerment. That is, go to GoFundMe.com and enter in the search field, the Coalition for Planetary Empowerment. This is Johnny Blue Star. Imagine a dark night. The wind is crisp and cool. The sky cloudless and majestic. Perhaps you are walking alone or with a loved one. Scattered about the night sky are thousands upon thousands of points of light. Look above you, friends of this restless planet. Out there into the night sky, unknown worlds await. Beauty behind imagination. Intelligence beyond comprehension. Life in its infinite forms and variations, yet all from the same seed, the same fundamental vibration. A cosmic tapestry of infinite light yet each thread unique and indispensable. Look above you, out into the vastness of the night sky, for your destiny lies out there, somewhere among the stars. Oh, freedom. Oh, freedom. Oh, freedom. Over. And go home to my Lord and be free. Oh, freedom. Buried, buried in my grave. 
Oh!